Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, less than a week after a gunman killed eight people, including six Asian Americans in the Atlanta area, ten people are dead in Boulder after a gunman opened fire in a supermarket. We'll get the latest developments on both mass shootings, and we'll talk with writer R. Okwan about her beautiful and difficult letter to Asian American women, published in Vanity Fair days after the Atlanta killings. Join us. The names of the victims in the mass shooting at a supermarket yesterday in Boulder, Colorado, have been released. They include Nevin Stanisich, who was 23, Ricky Olds was 25 years old, Trelona Barkoviak was 49, Suzanne Fountain, 59, Terry Lecker was 51, Kevin Mahoney, 61, Lynn Murray, 62, Jody Waters, 65. Boulder police officer Eric Talley was 51. And Denny Strong was the youngest. Strong was 20 years old. Joining me now is Natalia Navarro, a reporter for Colorado Public Radio, for an update on the shootings. Natalia Navarro, thanks so much for joining us on short notice. Thank you so much for having me. What else can you tell us about any of these victims? Yeah, um, the person we know most about is Officer Tally, um, age 51. He was the first person, uh, the first officer on the scene yesterday. We know that he worked for the Boulder Police Department since 2010. His father told a local TV station that he leaves behind seven children. His police chief, Maris Harold, said this morning at a press conference that he was a kind man who cared about the community, that he was willing to die to protect it. Harold said she had Tally and his family in her office only a few weeks ago to give him an award for his work. So authorities did hold a press conference a short time ago, shared some additional information about what unfolded. 
But what more can you tell us? What are the questions people are still wanting answers to? Yeah, they shared a bit of information that we didn't have yesterday, but we're still waiting on news as to a possible motive. There's also no specifics about what kind of weapon was used or the exact timeline inside the store. We do know the shooting started around 2.40 yesterday afternoon. Police arrived a few minutes later and immediately engaged with the suspect. And by an hour later, the suspect was in custody. And what are the issues that this mass shooting is raising in Boulder, in Colorado? Yeah, there there have been quite a few mass shootings in Colorado over the last few years. So it's bringing up a lot of common feelings. People are scared. People are feeling, you know, this again, that sort of feeling. And it's really happening all too often. It's becoming oddly familiar. Um, And I expect there to be a lot of discussion around gun gun control at the legislature and local governments, as there have been after other mass shootings in the state. Yes, as you say, multiple mass shootings, the very large scale ones that we know, like Aurora and and Littleton. And I wonder if you can just tell us how they do factor into the emotional reactions that people are having to this. I think it just is growing this emotional reaction to mass shooting after mass shooting. If you've lived here for any time at all, you've probably experienced more than one. I myself have lived here for coming on three years and I've reported on three of them. So it's just, it's just difficult. A lot of people are just sad and they're just reaching out to each other to make sure that, that we're all right. And and that we're, you know, we're getting texts from across the country from family and friends to, to check in. Well, Natalia Navarro, we know it's hard and so appreciate you coming on to talk with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And we'll continue to monitor the situation in Boulder and joining me now is Emil Moffat to talk about the aftermath of the Atlanta killings. Of course, the mass shooting in Boulder was the second large-scale shooting in the U.S. in less than a week. Emil Moffat, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here. So you're a reporter for WABE, which is, a, of course, the affiliate in Atlanta. You reported on several events that have been held in the Atlanta area in the wake of the mass shootings, including a vigil held by several Asian American church congregations over the weekend, one actually outside of Gold Spa in Atlanta, one of the businesses that the gunman had targeted. Can you talk about what the message was at that service? Yes, the message was one of of really fear, of anger, of sadness. Um, and there was just this sense of that this type of of rhetoric and and some of the violence has been going on for a long time against the Asian American community and that it hasn't been getting a lot of attention. Um, And so when something like this happens, it of course comes as a shock to all of us, but there was this sense that, you know, this has been kind of building for for years and years, and especially over the last year with an increase in in violence and and hate crimes against uh, Asian Americans uh, during the pandemic. Uh, just kind of a, you know, hope, hoping uh, from their perspective, um, from the community's perspective, that this might mark a turning point where there would be more attention paid uh, to violence, to hate speech against uh, Asian Americans. And are you seeing or sensing that actually happening? I know that in addition to the vigils, there was a rally at the Georgia State Capitol over the weekend. You know, what was being shared there? And, and does it feel like there is a, a groundswell of understanding about the way Asian Americans have been affected, especially during the pandemic? 
there were hundreds upon hundreds of people there. I think even the organizers were were surprised with the turnout uh, near the state capitol on Saturday. Uh, it even brought out uh, Georgia's two new U.S. senators, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, who both spoke at the event. Um, and both of them spoke to the need for stronger hate crime legislation, both at a state and a federal level. Uh, Georgia just recently passed its uh, its first hate crime bill last year in June, uh, following uh, the death of a, of a black man, a jogger in Brunswick, Georgia. Um, and so this may be one of the first tests to see, um, you know, how that actually plays out in in real life uh, in terms of the the hate crime legislation. Um, but I do see a growing sense that that Georgia is is much more diverse than it used to be. It's been growing more diverse in the last several decades. Um, and I think that that the, a lot of the folks at that rally said this is not who we are anymore, that everybody should feel welcome and everybody should feel safe. And so there was just a, a, a tremendous outpouring of support uh, for the Asian-American community here in Atlanta in that rally on Saturday. Authorities in the Atlanta area have been criticized, um, especially by entities outside the state as well as inside. We've learned, for example, that a survivor of one of the spa shootings, the husband of one of the women killed, Mario Gonzalez, had been held in handcuffs for hours after the attack. And of course, earlier authorities were framing the incident around the killer, his bad day, that that he claims it wasn't racially motivated and so on. How are people there reacting to this and has it had any impact on authorities? I mean, are they working to try to improve their response here? I think they are, and there's also been a couple of pieces of legislation that have been introduced in the in the state legislature here in Georgia, which uh, just has a couple of days left in this current session, so not sure if they will actually uh, be able to pass any of this legislation, but legislation that um, tries to uh, better inform law enforcement agencies here in Georgia with regards to dealing with people who don't speak English, with people who speak different languages, that that a lot of these uh, communications issues, um, a lot of these cultural issues, um, just there's no infrastructure in place to make sure that that things like that don't happen, where you have victims, families of victims being put in handcuffs, um, where you have this um, this sense that that they were trying to understand what was inside the, you know, the the suspect's mind instead of trying to really think about the victims in this case and the fact that that, that they were, um, you know, six of the victims were uh, Asian American women. And as you say, in the last few days, we have learned more about the victims: um, Xiao Jie Tan, Dao Feng, Delena Ashley Yan, Paul Andre Michaels, Hyun Jung Kim Grant, Sunja Kim. Sunjung Park and Yonghae Yu. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us what you have learned about them, because it has taken a while for information to really come out. It has. And, and part of that is, is obviously the, the language barrier, the cultural barrier. Um, and, but we are learning more and more about these victims. They were, uh, you know, for, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, uh, women who had, uh, in many cases, um, spent their life uh, making a living, trying to support family. Some of them were were single parents who were raising children, have adult children now. Um, that that they were uh, working hard and toiling, and and really, um, you know, as some people described it over the weekend, trying to achieve the uh, quote unquote American dream of just working hard and providing for their families, and to be have their lives taken away um, at work. 
um, was really devastating to a lot of people here in this community. Uh, but just a sense that these were were hardworking family people um, that 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 really um, you know, were the victims of a of a you know just a terrible a terrible incident. Yes, a lot. I feel like I've been able to read about Hyunjung Grant Kim, who was a single mother of two boys who are now twenty and twenty two, and talking about just how fun their mother was, how much she tried to do everything she could for them, and the recollections that they have of her taking them to the mall and the aquarium and going out for sundubu and kimchi chicken and so on. A really lovely thought. I don't know if you have any other details about any of the others. It, they, they have been. They have been really heartbreaking stories just of, um, you know, just uh, uh, victims who um, had special things they did on Sunday. And that was one of the one of the things that really stood out about um, some of the the memorial service on Sunday um, where faith leaders came together was that how special that day was and just uh, thinking about those families and that they didn't have uh, their mother or their relative uh, on on that first Sunday after the shooting was just uh, was just really heartbreaking. So, um, you know, w- the more and more we learn about these victims, I think it's important to to realize that they were um, that they were mothers and, and and family members who will be very missed. Emil Moffat is a reporter for WABE, the NPR affiliate in Atlanta. Anything else that you want to share about the latest developments around? the situation in Atlanta, the killings in Atlanta that my questions haven't gotten to yet. Uh, I think uh, we're just uh, kind of waiting to see what the legal process uh, plays out. There have been many, many calls uh, for uh, there to be hate crime charges in addition to the the murder counts that the the 21-year-old suspect faces. Um, but we're going to have to see how it works. Like I mentioned, it is a, it is a new law, so we'll have to see what that process is. But prosecutors have said they have not uh, ruled that out. They have not taken it off the table uh, that that this suspect could be charged with uh, even more than than murder, which of course would uh, deal into any sentencing uh, that would happen. Uh, it may impact that. Emil Moffat, a reporter for WABE. Thank you. You're welcome. Early, earlier, we were joined by Natalia Navarro, who gave us an update on the situation in Boulder. We're also monitoring reports of a person with a gun at the veterans' home in Yontville in Napa County. Law enforcement officials have sealed off the area. I'm Mina Kim. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Days after the Atlanta murders, Bay Area-based writer R.O. Kwan penned a letter in Vanity Fair titled, A Letter to My Fellow Asian Women Whose Hearts Are Still Breaking. She writes, Still and always, hypersexualized, ignored, gaslit, marginalized, and disrespected as we've been. I am so fortified, so alive when I'm with us. R.O. Kwan, welcome to Forum. Hi, thank you for having me. 
What made you want to write your reflection on the killings in Atlanta as a letter to Asian American women? Mm, I think I realized, um, you know, my my reaction tends to be um, when there's an atrocity that, especially an atrocity that directly affects my communities, as this one does. Um, I mean, I guess it, as they all do, really. Um, but I, I was. I was being asked to write about it um, and I was wondering what my responsibilities are. And I was of course grieving intensely as really um, every Asian American woman I know has been grieving. Um, And I just thought I don't have the wherewithal right now to explain myself, um, Mm -hmm. to explain that Asian Americans, Asian American women deserve full rights. Um, I I don't have the energy to explain myself right now to white people. I don't have the energy to explain and to defend our humanity um, to people who don't already see it, who should have seen it from the start. And I found that instead, I really wanted to talk with Asian women and that in, and like all of last week and today too, I felt really drawn towards spaces with Asian women. Um, and so that was, that, was, that was all I just wanted to, I wanted to be, I wanted to be in more community with, with fellow Asian women who are, who are feeling this so intensely and so personally. Yes, I was so struck by that line in your piece where you say, today I am not spending any more of my limited time alive defending the humanity of marginalized people. And it struck me so much that, you know, when you're defending marginalized people, you're not necessarily speaking to the marginalized, to the marginalized right? You're speaking to the people that you have to defend them with. And so in so many ways, too, it felt so much like a metaphor for how Asian women, Asian American women are regarded in this country in terms of sort of removed from the conversation or removed from looking at marginalized people in some ways. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. Um, And, you know, I, there have been so many lovely um, heartbroken responses from Asian women to, um, to this piece, to this letter. And what one woman said, and I I just like burst into tears the minute I saw it, she said in, um, you know, in 30 plus years, I have never had, a public letter addressed to me as an Asian woman, as an immigrant. And I hadn't even thought about that, but that if, I mean, that, that does seem true. Like that is true um, for a lot of people. And, and how, how can that be? Like, how are we so talked over? How are we so ignored? It is actually true for me. I'll be honest, Arhokwan, your, your letter in Vanity Fair was the first time that I had truly seen something that felt uh, so reflective of of my own experience. And so I think you you basically show that talked overness so well. For example, at one point you write um, that you're, you're speaking to Asian women, not for, that there's no speaking for Asian women, quote, splendidly vast and manifold as our people are, which brought up so much that, you know, often the actions of one Asian person are held up as representing all Asians or Asian Americans. Um, And so, so you, you know, at one moment, basically show and, and give light to just how different we all are, including when you say, you know, that your life doesn't necessarily overlap with the six Asian women killed, nor the four women of Korean descent who were killed as well, the four Korean Americans. But one of the things that I was so struck by, as you say this, is you sort of end that sentence then, or end that paragraph, talking about how the thing that we do all share in common is that America has trouble telling any of us apart. Um, And so all at once also asserting the shared experience. Was that what you were trying to do? 
I think, um, I think, yeah, that was what I was, because I am, you know, I'm really conscious of, um, and I think a lot of, um, especially the Asian American women, I know are conscious of not wanting to excessively conflate experience, you know, um, I yes. myself haven't worked in a massage parlor. I have worked in the service industry um, at a restaurant, but not since college. I'm a writer. Um, I, I work from home, you know, um, so there are all these ways in which, um, in which, I, I can't assume that my life has a ton of overlap, even with other Korean American women or Korean women living in America. Um, that said, you know, um, I say in the piece and it, and it is really real. This, I have a standing joke with my friends, um, with my Asian American woman friends and femme presenting friends um, that if, if we haven't been mistaken for each other, the joke is, are we even really friends? Like, are we that close? Like, that's, <laughs> that's like a level of friendship that, <laughs> that, that sort of um, solidifies our, 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 our closeness. And it's a joke, you know, but of course it's, it's birthed in a great deal of pain um, yes. in being mistaken for other Asian women over and over and over again. I know so much of this time when Asian women have become so visible, it almost in many ways highlights our individual, our our invisibility in the way that we aren't individualized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's part, I, I don't know. Um, I feel as though until last week, there were so many people who were barely aware of all the attacks on Asian people um, that have been sharply rising over the past year. And I wonder if some of it is that sort of lack of ability to differentiate between us. It's just, you know, maybe it's just like, I don't even know. I'm trying to imagine like the, the mindsets of, is it just like noise on the margins? Like, okay, I guess Asian people are being attacked. Like, are, is there, is it just part of a failure to see us all as, as human beings worthy of, um, of, of full rights? I keep coming back to rights. <laughs> that's, we're just, I think like people, people want to be able to live. Um, that's what, that's what we want. We want to be able to live. We want to be able to, I don't want my Asian woman friends to be terrified of leaving the apartment. I have so many friends who, are currently asking them are have not been going to the store have not been I have a friend who hasn't been taking walks with her baby because she knows that having her baby with her means she'll be less able to defend herself less able to run and I the anger I feel every time I hear one of these stories every time I talk to another elderly Asian person who is making um, changes to their schedule you know because they they, they're trying to go to the store early in the morning when there are fewer people around. They're wondering if they should go to the Asian store or to the, or to the more sort of um, general interest supermarket or which one is safer. <laughs> this is, and, and this is, this is affecting, I, I just want to say, this is, I don't think people necessarily understand this is affecting. I just want to say it's every Asian person I know, or at least every Asian person I've talked to about this. This isn't, this is so widespread right now. Um, and I don't think a lot of, I don't think everyone is aware of this still. We're talking with Aro Kwon about her Vanity Fair article, A Letter to My Fellow Asian Women Whose Hearts Are Still Breaking. Aro Kwon is author of the novel The Incendiaries and co-editor of the anthology Kink Stories. And, and if there's anything you're hearing that sparks a thought or question, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. This this line in your piece about hearts still breaking, one of the things that you wrote about was how you 
refrained basically from reaching out to your your mom to talk to her about being safe, to talk to her about taking care of herself. Why were you reluctant to do that? Yeah. Um, no, thank you for asking that. Well, I think um, I was realizing because I, I really had been trying um, for a full year, really, um, basically the minute, the minute um, the previous president, I still refuse to say his name, honestly, the, the minute the previous president started calling um, the COVID a Chinese virus, um, I, you know, I cried so much that day. So many friends cried and we knew exactly what would happen from that. We knew what kind of we knew what kind of hatred would be stoked. We knew what kind of ignorance would be stoked. Um, and so I've been trying for a year to tell my mother oh, to, to please watch out when she goes to the store, to please be careful, um, to watch out for anyone who looks the least bit hostile. And I haven't been able to until, this, until, um, until last Thursday, really. And I think it was because I know that my parents, um, I know that my parents, moved to the U.S. from Korea, in part because I'm probably going to get, I'm probably going to get a little um, tearful because this, this hits so close to home for me. Yes. I knew that my parents had moved to the U.S. for my sake and my brother's sake. You know, I moved here when I was three with my family. Um, my, my parents gave up a great deal to move here. And they really did it mostly for us. And so there was such pain in having to tell, and once again, being confronted with the ways in which my parents are in a lot of ways um, here because of me. And so if they're here because of me, I found it almost unbearable that therefore they are in, they are in real danger because of me. And I know that, you know, I know I was three. I know it's not my fault per se, but of course I feel responsible toward them. Um, and so when I did finally on, on Wednesday or Thursday after the shootings, when I did finally say, tell myself, okay, I need to tell my mother this, um, I asked her to please be careful going to the store. I asked her to please be careful taking walks. I asked her to please let me deliver her more groceries um, to have them to have them sent from the Korean store. Um, and she and she had this entire list of reasons why she felt why, why she felt okay going to the store. And it really did it, it hurt me so much that it was a list. She had it ready. She'd been thinking through it. Um, mm. And then she said, this is almost funny. She started very, trying very hard to persuade me to stay home. And I'm the one in less danger, you know, I'm the one in less obvious danger because these directs have, these attacks have horrifyingly um, been, been really targeting older Asian people, people our elders. Um, and she said, you know, please don't go to the store. Why are you going to the store? And she lives in LA and she said, you live in San Francisco. There aren't as many Asians there. And I just was like, I, there are plenty of Asian people here. <laughs> How do we change the focus? And then she said the line that really destroyed me. She said, if you do insist on going out, please speak in English more loudly so that people know you belong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I, I'm laughing, but the pain of that, you know, I know, you know. <laughs> The, when you described it as pain riddled jokes, right, that that was so appropriate um, in terms of describing the the laughter around those types of experiences. And then the other part of it was your description of when you talk with other Asian women about, you know, somebody who went after a Korean woman and that you almost felt bad for the person who went after them because you're also in that same moment and in that very same piece, also just talking about how ferocious Korean women can be in the best way possible. <laughs> 
Yes, and that um, you know that that thought um, and and reminding ourselves um, with especially my Korean American friends, my Korean American family members, um, reminding ourselves of just how terrified we are um, of formidable Korean American women and Korean women. Um, I, I say this in the piece, and I'm really not exaggerating. There is no one more intimidating to me than a ferocious Korean woman. Um, <laughs> there is no one I would rather not cross. <laughs> <laughs> and so as, as terrifying as it is as it's been, you know, I know a lot of people were, were trying to sort of make ourselves feel better with, you know, I also have a grandmother and she's like 90 some years old. Um, and she, we, the general family feeling is that we pity the fool who tries anything with her because we're all afraid of her. <laughs> she puts up with absolutely nothing. She's just like a terrifying, tiny woman. Um, and of course, though, you know, that's another pain riddle joke because, yes, she's terrifying and she's tiny um, and she's 97 years old. And I do worry about her being um, shoved as she's walking down the street, as her elders have been um, all across all across the country, being harassed as she's been walk- as she's walking down the street, being beaten and kicked and punched. And I, I just want to say all these things because there have been so many variations of it. And I think people don't, people don't see that. And so, but, but we're seeing it, you know, um, we're seeing the headlines. Um, I've been seeing on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I saw a different Wednesday um, at last Wednesday, as these, oh, as these terrible shootings were being reported, there were two elders in San Francisco, Asian elders who were attacked, um, who were attacked by, by, by a man who was yelling, who was yelling, yelling at them too. And I just, this is, so from my point of view, this has been basically every, every day, um, just like in the past week. And, 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 and this is, and this is, doesn't even feel novel. It's been like this for a long time. I, I appreciate that you want to name it, the the fact that Asian Americans have been beaten, punched, shoved, in addition, shunned, uh, verbally harassed. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think it's important to name it and for people to recognize that it's happening so much. The other thing that I really appreciated about your description of both being concerned about your mom, uh, but then also talking about how ferocious Korean women are, was just the juxtaposition of these two stories, because it helps to complicate the narrative of vulnerable or subservient Asian women as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that stereotype is such a hard one. The stereotype, um, the very prevalent stereotype that Asian women are, whew, Lord knows, are submissive, are quiet, are compliant, um, which once again, every time I run into those, um, those descriptions, I'm just like, have you, have you met an Asian woman? <laughs> have you ever spoken to one? Because <laughs> this is not my experience. Again, I don't want to conflate. Um, Asian American is a very broad umbrella. Um, Asians compose what um, half the globe more. Um, and I don't want to conflate things. But that is not that is not. These are the very last adjectives I would turn to in describing Asian women. So I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of mingled, um, there's such sorrow over this past week. I, I really can't overstate that. It's overstate that as I know, you know, and there's, and there's also been so much love. I've been so grateful for, um, the support and love and, and friendship and care of, um, of so many other Asian American women, especially. And from, I, I keep wanting to also mention, um, them presenting people. Um, yes. I know there's a lot of resistance, there, I know a lot of non-binary friends don't like being grouped um, with women, um, of course, but in this case with gender 
gender-based violence. Um, I've also seen a lot of um, a lot of people say that femme presenting people who aren't women um, are absolutely, of course, um, highly vulnerable. And yeah, no, I've just been so grateful for that, for that, for that sort of for that company, for that love. And, and thank you for saying that. This listener writes, I feel every word of this piece. Grace is a popular Korean American name. And in college, I would literally get mistaken for every Grace on campus and complimented for my story in the school paper, a lab I submitted, a piano concert I performed in or, or a photo exhibition my work was featured in. All of these were done by an Asian Grace, but not me. I got so tired of correcting people. So I just thanked them for the compliment and moved on. I'm sure that people thought I was either the most talented person to set foot on that campus or completely psychotic <laughs> with a personality disorder. But you can only say thanks, but not me so many times. Oh my goodness. That's so real. You know, um, so my, I, my, the right, the name I write under is R.O. Kwan. Um, and that R stands for Reese. Um, and the number of graces I've been mistaken with and my name, <laughs> my name isn't even Grace, but people somehow take Reese to mean Grace. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, Grace is a very popular, especially, um, is a very popular name among Asian American women, so much so that in 2005, I believe, there was a movie um, titled Grace Lee that sort of looked into this phenomenon of like Grace Lee's being mistaken for one another and like what, what, what is the, why is this name so popular? Anyway, so yeah, I've been mistaken with a number of Graces and my name isn't even Grace. <laughs> wow. We're talking with R.O. Guan. <laughs> author of the novel The Incendiaries, co-editor of the anthology Kink Stories, and author of the Vanity Fair article, A Letter to My Fellow Asian fellow Asian Women Whose Hearts Are Still Breaking, which Arokwan wrote in the aftermath of the Atlanta killings. What would you like to ask Arokwan about? What are your reactions or thoughts that are coming up as you hear this conversa conversation? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. Email questions or comments to forum at kqed.org, or you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with writer R.O. Kwan about her Vanity Fair article, A Letter to My Fellow Asian Women Whose Hearts Are Still Breaking. Kwan is also author of the novel The Incendiaries and co-editor of the anthology King Stories. You, our listeners, are with us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Email address forum at kqed.org. Our Twitter handle at KQED Forum. And you can also post comments on Facebook. Tom writes, the Atlanta killer claimed this was about his sex addiction. Why conservatives are pushing this narrative, I think that's just a way of deflecting away from his targeting Asian women. If there, if this weren't about racism, why did the killer only target Asian establishments? Why didn't he target any gentlemen's clubs that almost certainly involve prostitution in back rooms? Uh, Arakwan, first, 
one of the things that Tom's comment reminds me of a little bit was that the framing was initially put out by the authorities uh, in the Atlanta area by the sheriffs, I believe, of Cherokee County. And you write a lot about failings. You write about the failings all around us, whether it be from law enforcement, whether it be from media, politicians. Wondering if you have a reaction to Tom's comment, feel free to please uh, share that. Um, but also, if you could just talk a little bit about wh what struck you about all of these failings. Mm, thank you for that. Um, well, just a quick note on the, on the I mean, I, what Tom is saying is, um, is right. And this question of whether or not it's racism. So this 21-year-old white man um, went to win one mas Asian massage business, shot people, then drove half an hour to shoot at people, to, to shoot at people at two more Asian spas. Um, how is this not an anti-Asian? <laughs> how is this? And when is the last time? The fact that, the fact that so many um, media outlets were really sort of merrily repeating um, what the killer said that he, when he said it wasn't, that when he said that it was a sex addiction, addiction. I'm honestly having trouble thinking of the last time we took a mass murderer at their word um, and, and turned that into news all over the country. What, what is this? Why would, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm getting speechless because I, I was so angry about that. I know so many people were angry about that. I don't know why we have to spend so much time in this country debating whether or not something is racism. Well, I guess I do know. And the and the and an possible answer is if we don't have to if we don't have to acknowledge that racism is a giant um, abiding problem in this country, then I guess people feel we don't have to do anything about it. Maybe that's maybe that's part of the the, the deflection. Um, I think I, I know a lot of people too, and I was too. Um, another great failure I think all across this country is the insistence on public, on publicizing a killer's name um, and photo over and over and over again. I will carry this killer's face to my grave. I will carry the image of his face to my grave. I didn't have to. Um, with the Christchurch shootings, they made, a, they, made a, they, made a, they made a sort of countrywide decision to not say the killer's name, to not publicize the killer's face. And there's so much research showing that the more you publicize, the more you publicize these murderers' um, names and faces, the more notoriety, the more notoriety they gain. And then the more, and then the more, and then the more people are possibly going to be inspired to join in. Um, it's so harmful, and I think these are such easy things that we could avoid doing. Let me go to caller John in San Francisco. Hi, John. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what I'll call erasure, which to me is the idea that uh, Asian people and maybe Asian women in particular are are not seen in both the physical sense and, and, and even as a human being. I went to a rally in San Francisco after the, the killings in Atlanta last weekend, and an Asian woman got up and really captured my attention when she said, you know, that she has men who will cut in front of her in a line or basically not even see her when she's walking down a street, and she basically has to move out of the way because she's practically invisible to them. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. John, thanks. Yeah, of course. Um, no, I mean, that definitely happens. That's a phenomenon that, that affects. Um, here, I want to say this, that this, this is definitely not only Asian people, you know, um, 
this this happens to this happens to our black siblings all the time. This happens to our other brown siblings all the time, um, where people quite literally don't see us. Where people just cut in front of us. Where they and they and then when I if I, if somebody cuts in front of me in a line and I say excuse me, they say oh sorry I didn't see you there. Um, and it's just well what did you see then? <laughs> My body was right here. Is it just that am I am I actually physically invisible to you? Like what is going on? And again. This is yet another byproduct of racism of not, and um, of not being able to see other people as full, as full human beings. You mentioned um, one of the things you mentioned in your piece was how thankful you were, especially to black and, and brown siblings who live with systemic injustice, unending police violence and profound marginalization, who know to extend us their love, along with at least some white people. That's a quote from your piece in Vanity Fair. And I was really struck by this because that is exactly who reached out <laughs> to me, mm-hmm. people of color, uh, much more often. And then you also write that the silences this week ring loud in the texts we haven't received in the absences on social media as the people who say they deeply love us, who have heard us talk about this, fail to wonder if we're okay. So people who say they love us yet fail to reach out. Is this something that happened to you this week, this past week? Because it really only has been a week. Mm, yeah, it's really only been a week and what a, what a long, terrible week. Um, no, this definitely has happened to me. Um, and it's happened to, and I agree with you, Mina. Um, I feel, I feel so, um, held and loved, um, by my friends of color. Um, and I do feel, and I do feel, and I have heard from a good number, um, of close white friends, um, and not all. And i I think here's what I'll say, um, because I know a lot of, I, I think I feel actually a little bit less pain about this than a lot of my friends do, especially my friends with, whew, with white family members who aren't reaching out, who aren't saying a thing, who aren't posting a single thing on social media, not even that one obligatory post that goes up in the, in the, wake, of a, in the wake of a tragedy. Um, y'all can't even manage that. Um, the white in-laws, the white, the white best friends, um, what I'll say about that is when part of the problem is silence, when a silence, when, and when part of the problem with this racism is that people are denying it is even happening, everyone else's silence helps feed that denial, helps feed the idea that there isn't racism, that it isn't happening. And so that silence is a giant part of the problem. Um, and here I'm going to try to take... Um, if, if you didn't know to anyone who's listening, if you didn't know that you should reach out, if you didn't know that you should say something at your workplace, if you didn't know that your organization should care about this, that your, that your workplace should care about this, that your classroom should care about this. Um, again, I cannot speak for all Asian people. I can never speak for all Asian people. What I can speak for is, um, is my experience as an Asian person and the Asian people I love. It's, it's, you're being part of the problem. Um, and, and I, and I would hope that, that if you don't want to be part of the problem, that you would want to do something about that. And here again, I'm not speaking about, about this one massacre. I'm speaking about, whew, I'm speaking about the Pulse shootings. I'm speaking about the El Paso shootings. I'm speaking, I'm speaking about the Charlottesville, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's happened over and over. And I just don't understand how people still haven't learned that in the wake of a mass, of a mass murder, that is racially motivated, and in this case, racially and sexually motivated, it is the human thing to do to say something about it. 
We're talking with R.O. Kwan. Her Vanity Fair piece is called A Letter to My Fellow Asian Women Whose Hearts Are Still Breaking. Louisa tweets, how can we raise awareness of anti-Asian hatred in this country to other people other than the Asian community itself? The media is not giving much coverage and there is subconscious racism already embedded in society. Do you have any thoughts for Louisa? Um, what I would say is... Um, I don't know to what extent. I feel as though often I get a lot more of my news. Um, I get it more quickly and more thoroughly in some in some cases, not all, um, from social media, um, where I follow a lot of a lot of reporters of color, where I follow a lot of writers of color, thinkers of color, and so I never quite feel as though I'm as though I'm only as though I'm not. So for, for well, let's just like let's just bring this down to specifics again. I do not feel as though I'm outside. I'm hearing a great deal um, from Asian people's point of view about this. I'm hearing a great deal about Asian people. And it's partly because of the people I follow. And so that's just like one really easy way to, um, to, to raise your own awareness and to raise the pe- awareness of people around you is to listen to the people who talk about this. I'm thinking about what you wrote when you say that you hear about, read about, or encounter a fresh incident of hatred. You write the quiet refrain belling in my head like a chant or a dirge is our hearts are breaking. I found this frustrating for who does it help? What action is involved in having a breaking heart? Why did you ask yourself this question? (laughs) Yeah, um, that was something that I found so odd that so you know, for for so long, after every one of these, um, reports of incidences of hatred and or encounters with, with hatred. Um, the same sort of refrain was, was repeating in my head and it was our hearts are breaking. Um, and I think I found that frustrating because I really do. I think for me, it's just a way of managing my anxiety, um, managing my, um, managing my sorrow is, is when I'm very upset and very inclined to want to do something about it immediately um, to learn what I learn and to do what I can. Um, and so immediately I started, you know, that, I think that same day I started oh, sharing, sharing, um, sharing details about bystander training um, for bystander training. For those of you who don't know, it's training that helps people um, helps people do something when you encounter hatred, helps you, helps you sort of have the tools to know what to do. Um, and so I was sharing details about that and, and I was so heartbroken and I was just like crying and while I was doing it, as so many of my friends were. And finally I thought, you know, um, I think the next day, oh, which was another, which was another really hard day. Um, I think I, I think I thought, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this refrain is trying to tell me something. Um, maybe I need to sit with this and maybe I need to, maybe I, I need to just let this heart break for a little bit instead of trying to um, drown it out with action, maybe. And I, and in some ways, I, um, I think that's what led to writing this Vanity Fair piece is I was thinking that the, the people who um, were the most hurt by this were, I mean, of course, the people who are most hurt are the, are the families of the people who are killed and the friends of the people who are killed. Um, outside of that, the people who have been the most sort of directly, um, I want to say almost physically affected by this. Again, I don't know, I can't speak for all Asian women ever. Um, the Asian women I know 
haven't been dry-eyed at all this week, you know, almost all of the Asian women I, I know and I'm friends with and I've been talking with have been in a, have been in a, have been in a um, state of intense mourning. And, uh, and I found that I, I wanted to, I wanted to think about and worry about us first for this week. That, I think that was, I think that was the conclusion that I came to. We're talking with Aro Kwan. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Andrew in San Francisco. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Thank you so much for allowing me to, to just join in this conversation. I just I, I really wanted to affirm a lot of the things, especially as a Korean-American uh, born and raised in San Francisco. Um, there are so many things that she t- the speaker touched on that I just wanted to affirm and just praise her on. First of all, just being the fact that, you know, my mother, uh, she's 73. She's a small business owner with my father. They've worked on this and struggled just to make ends meet for so many years, for decades. And she's been attacked three times, robbed at gunpoint, and the third one and having her end up in the hospital. But, you know, one thing that I wanted to stress on is that, you know, Asian women, they may be seen as these weak, um, kind of passive, um, and, and it's kind of seen sexually as this exotic kind of trait in women. But, you know, they shouldn't mistake this for, for humility. I, I believe strongly that, like my mother, you know, their soft-spokenness and their demeanor is actually humility and being humble. And so I think a lot of other uh, races and, and ethnicities mistake that. So I just wanted to touch on that. And, you know, that Asian women are actually quite very strong. In fact, my father is very afraid of my mother. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that was the first thing that I wanted to touch on. The second thing being that, um, you know, as um, just Everything going on, you know, I, I was actually the victim of a hate crime in 2008 where I was basically gutted by two bikers with a screwdriver and it left me in the ICU for two weeks. And I ended up with PTSD and that's something that I still live with, but I've, I've chosen to become a survivor and not a victim about it. But, you know, I just wanted to let everybody in the community know, you know, the AAPI community that you are not alone. You know, there are others like myself who stand with you and for everything that's going on, especially now with the surge of violence and oppression, I just hope that our local governments and just our federal governments really do something to really step up, you know, and just make a difference. And I think that if we all pull in together, no matter what race you are, social change will happen and and it'll actually benefit everybody in the end. So that's just what I wanted to contribute to this discussion. Andrew, thank you you so much for contributing that to this discussion. Mm -hmm. I am so sorry for the trauma that you have experienced and then the trauma your, your mother has experienced and and just the the hope that you are also bringing to this. Thank you, Arakwan. I don't know if you also wanted to say anything to Andrew. Oh my gosh, I'm just so sorry about what you and your mother have gone through. Oh my lord, I'm, I'm just I'm so sorry. And thank you, thank you for telling us that. Thank you for telling people this. I appreciate that. If anything, I think that that's what makes us a, a very resilient people. And you know, through that, we we always rise up. And I think. Our community just needs to rise up more, speak out more, ask for help, ask for support, no matter what race you are. Again, it's not just about us working within our own community. It's really about everybody working together. Andrew, thanks. This listener writes, thank you for this program. I feel that all of this violence and the underlying pervasive racism towards any other than white has flown under the radar. The attacks on Asians and the murders last week are another layer of the white supremacy framework this country was built on. I am white, and my heart aches for America's inability to move beyond its ugly history. And Arokwan, one of uh, our producers, wanted you to respond to Lucy Feldman's 
piece, senior editor for Time magazine. The piece was titled, We Are Always Waiting Our Turn to Be Important, a love letter to Asian Americans that states, I will speak only for myself for so long I've been the one to defer to the ideas, expertise, importance of others. At work, I've let them tell me what I am ready for, what value I can bring in life. I listen first, speak later. I do the work of caretaker and advocate. I empathize. This is my role and I play it well. You're not supposed to write about big feelings while you're having them. You're supposed to wait until you have enough distance to be objective, to sort out the important details from the ones that will fade with meaning over time. But I realize that's the problem. I am always waiting my turn to be important. If I may, we are always waiting our turn to be important. Mm. That, um, that resonates a lot with me. Um, that said, I think one thing I might say um, is I, I'm, I'm not sure that this is something um, that the writer that, I mean, and, and I'm sure that the, that the, the, the piece itself didn't say so, um, but for anyone who's listening and thinking, I'm not sure that the writer, um, that, the Asian, that the Asian woman is the one who needs to fix herself. I think the people who need to fix themselves um, are predominantly, well, I'm not the first person to say this, um, but, you know, in, in these, in this hatred against Asian people, against black people, um, against Latinx people, against native people, um, whew, it, it, there's, there's one group that keeps being named as the problem, as the biggest problem. <laughs> and that group is white people. Um, and I'm, again, I'm far from the first person to say this, but white people fix yourselves. Y'all need to do the work. We are we are all we are trying to do the work, but y'all really need to do, do the work. And the minute and the denial comes most from y'all. Fix your people. Um, if, if fix 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 your relatives, like fix your friends, fix your fix your fix your fix your workplaces. And I that's that's where some of my energy would go. Um, that said, back to the piece. Um, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you very much. And that's and that's so common to to Asian women um, and to women of color um, and to women. Period. Arokwan, thanks so much for talking with us today, and thank you for your peace. I'm Nina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.